selves here, and perhaps we get a little localitis, but uh, there are still those out there scattered about who are concerned and looking at what's going on in the world and what the Bible says and uh, wanting to be in the right place at the right time to do what God wants done. And uh, that number is going to increase quite a little as we get further and further into this. And I don't say as we get into it anymore. Now I say further into it because we're already headed down the rabbit hole. It's uh, it's there. We're just going deeper and deeper into it. Uh, I'm seeing things now that indicate that this January may be quite significant. They're trying to have their vaccine all ready to roll out. And uh, I heard one report that the world... Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland this year <clears throat> isn't going to be talking about the reset <clears throat> as they have in the past, but this time they intend to institute it. So we'll see what comes down in January. Uh, they've been using that term reset now rather than new world order. They find different ways of expressing it to both reveal and try to conceal at the same time what they're doing. Uh, when you reset the table, you take everything that's off, that's on it, and reset it. Uh, if you want to reset the stage, you take everything off the stage and reset it for a whole different script, a whole different act. And that's what they're doing with the world, is trying to wipe everything out and start over with a new system. So it's right here and this I'm just amazed when I see people anywhere in our country now and almost anywhere in the world and nearly everybody's wearing a face diaper. It's just it's incredible that they've been able to force that on people and cause them everywhere to hide who they are. You know, we can hardly recognize each other anymore on the street, and we can hardly hear each other anymore. Uh, maybe it's just my old ears, but when people are wearing that mask, it's more difficult to understand what they're saying. And uh, hiding from a virus that hardly exists because they've convinced people of a lie. Anyway... That's where we are, and uh, Trump apparently is bringing many, many, many troops back into this country from Afghanistan and Iraq uh, to get them home. Uh, there's speculation as to why, but uh, I think he expects uh, a lot of unrest between now and the 20th of January when there's supposed to be a new president sworn in. Uh, it looks like trouble no matter what happens. Uh, one commentator made a comment several months ago that if there is a contested election, it will be the very, very best scenario for the world elite who want to usher in their new system. Because once it's contested, you're going to have people lining up on either side, which is what's happening right now, and whoever then is declared it is going to cause a, quite a reaction from the other side. If Trump 
is announced president, the whole left wing half of the nation are going to go berserk. If Biden is in, the conservatives might not immediately uh, do the same thing that the Democrats would be doing, but they're going to resist, but immediately the Democrats are going to try to usher in a total lockdown, not just a partial, but a total lockdown, and give everybody a vaccine, and it will finish off the U.S. economy and make us total... uh, totally ready to be invaded and destroyed, as the Scripture says is going to happen. So we're in it now. There's no going back. There's no reprieve, I don't think. It's just going to get stronger and stronger and stronger, and I've been saying that for some time. But just to repeat it and be sure that we understand the new normal, as they put it. Nothing will ever be what we understood as normal again. I mean, just go to town, and everybody is wearing masks, and they're standing back from each other, and and get offended easily, and it's just, the whole society is just changing. And why did they choose social distancing to be six feet apart? Uh, What is the number of the beast? What is the number of man? Six. And triple six is the number of the man to come. Three times six, or 666. Not 18, but 666. And I commented once before, I think that that six also has another symbolic meaning. They intend to bury over 90% of the population. And how deep do they typically bury people? Six feet. That is... To the elites, that is proper social distancing, is to get you six feet beneath them. And that's their intention. Now, it's only symbolic because there will probably be some huge pits dug and people dumped in uh, by the thousands and tens of thousands and covered over. But But traditionally and symbolically, six feet is where they put you. So there's an awful lot of things with man that are coming about, and we're watching it happen. Now, last week we were in Numbers 12 and never got out of it. Uh, This series, of course, has to do with the new covenant and the conditions of it uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it probably is going to get quite long. But uh, there is another fundamental belief that we have held for really throughout uh, the last over 70 years now during Worldwide Church of God that perhaps should be addressed here because we're talking about the New Covenant. And who made the New Covenant? What does the New Covenant insist of? And who are the covenant uh, formers? Not farmers, but the ones who form it. Uh We have taught in Worldwide for all these decades that God is a family, uh, that there is a father and a son, and indeed, if you go through the New Testament, you'll see father and son dozens and dozens of times put together uh, as a duo, as two different people. 
and yet we have had a movement in what I began calling back in the mid to late 90s, the greater church of God. Maybe I should have called it the lesser church of God because less and less of the Bible is understood the further we go on by people who are beginning to lose what they understood. By greater, I meant the greater number, inclusive of all the different groups and so on, so I called it the greater church of God. And indeed, that's a term that kind of began to be used here and there, not for me, but other people looked at it that way as well. But then we had a movement begun by some that there was only one God being, uh, not two, but one. And then we had uh, these one God conferences going all over the country and all around the world by certain ones who had been fairly high in the administration in Pasadena and in Bricketwood and so on, uh, purporting that there was only one being there, not two, and that the Melchizedek of the Old Testament was not Christ. Uh, Herbert Armstrong firmly believed that the Melchizedek of the Old Testament was the Jesus Christ, or whom we call Emmanuel, of the New Testament, and taught that throughout. But that has been debunked by some and not believed by some. Now, this is a very fundamental doctrine. Salvation is about the Father and the Son and those who come later, us, to be a part of that family. Now, let's understand something before we go any further. Satan wants everybody to believe that there's only one God. That's his premise. There isn't the Father. He negates him. He tried to do away with the Son by defeating him after his fast of 40 days and 40 nights. He doesn't want to admit that there's a Father or a Son. Satan believes in the one God theory and that he is it. He wants to take over, do away with the Father and the Son, and if he can get rid of them, he can also get rid of they who are to become part of that family as the sons and as the bride. And he is doing his level best to destroy all mankind, and especially the bride of Christ. Because when he is cast down there in Revelation 12, he immediately comes after the church, the candidate to be the bride of Christ, is who he comes after. And since he is not allowed to destroy her, she makes it safely to Zion unless she goes back in the house after something. (laughs) He's not allowed to destroy her. So then he goes after the remnant of her seed, those who are left behind who did not come, the 90% of the church who were left behind who did not come to build the temple, who are not in Zion. He goes out and persecutes and destroys them. Now, they're the ones that Revelation, I mean, uh, Daniel 11 and other places talk about, about how he will get up high above the saints and kill some, and make war against them. He isn't allowed to make war against the bride because she's taken to Zion and protected. But the 90% that are left behind, 
He goes after them. And it is his intent to kill every last one of them. And if they have the Spirit of God, however weak, there's some light there. And he can see that light, the light of God in their mind. So he can identify them quite easily. He identifies you and me, oh, quite easily. Because he goes to the throne of God every day and accuses us, trying to get us condemned by God to the lake of fire. Is his goal and purpose. So do you begin to kind of put it together where the one God theory came from and how it got planted in men's minds? Men in the church who've bought into one God. And they are being deceived into believing that. And who is the great deceiver? They are being led into that kind of thinking by the devil himself. Because he is the primary one who promotes that thought. I am God, he says. And there is no other but me. No, Jesus, I'm the one. Now, let's go back to Numbers 12 briefly. Because this opens the thought that I just discussed with you of what was revealed to Herbert Armstrong and what he taught and what I taught and still do. And then those who have come up with some different ideas and theories. And I think perhaps it should be addressed here. It's kind of a an inset sermon, if you will, like last week's was. But we better know and understand who is the beginning of the new covenant. And who is included in the new covenant? And if we don't understand who made it and where it came from, we really don't have a clue as to where we're going and what we're doing. We need to know. So there's a statement made here in Numbers 12 that I want to jump on. Go down to verse 7. Uh, he's talking here about the prophets, which we read again last week, and how he would speak to the prophets normally in a dream or a vision. But he says, My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all my house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, obviously in other words, and not in dark speeches, not in visions, not in dreams, not in things that are hard to be understood, but mouth to mouth. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. His form, his shape, his similitude. Shall he behold. So he would see this Lord who is speaking here. Okay, is that pretty clear? Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So whoever is speaking here as the Lord would be talking to and seen by Moses. Okay? I think that statement is undeniable. It can't be really twisted. It's pretty clear. Plain English. Plain Hebrew translated to English, if you will. 
All right, where do we go from there? Let's go to John 1.1 in the New Testament and begin to shed some light on who this was that was speaking back here. Because this is a very, very important thing for us to grasp, understand, and know that we know. I wondered, what was this one God thing all about? I looked at it a little bit and realized it was poppycock, as Herbert Armstrong used to use that word. Uh, we have other terms for it today and some uh, more crude than that. But uh, poppycock. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. So at the beginning of man's existence was the Word. Well, who was the Word? What does this mean? Let him explain. And the Word was with God. So now here's somebody called the Word in capital letters. It's not just a word in the English language, but the Word. A being. The Word was with God. Now, here is a being that was with God. And the Word was God. So he's defining this a little at a time for us to get the whole picture. In the beginning was this individual, the Word. When was the beginning? Genesis 1-1, the creation. Okay? That's the only beginning we all know. It's the only beginning we understand. Any beginning before that, we have no clue. We don't know when Satan was made. We don't know when the angels were made. There's nothing in the Bible, and there's nothing in man's history that indicates any other beginning. Now, I think it's clear in Genesis 1 that says in the Hebrew, in a beginning. That's true. There were other beginnings, but there's nothing about them, okay? This beginning mentioned in Genesis 1.1 is the only one we know of. It's the only one described. So when John talks about in the beginning, he's talking about that beginning in Genesis 1, the creation. And we'll see that uh, proved as to who was there by more scriptures. So this one was there in Genesis 1.1, clearly, whoever he is. And he was with God... Whoever God is, he was with him. And the Word was God. So, he was with God, and yet he was God. Now, how do you be with someone and be them? Unless you're talking about more than one individual. The same was in the beginning with God. He emphasizes that. This Word was there with God in the beginning. Now it says, all things were made by Him. So whoever this Word is, who was at the beginning, who was with God, and at the same time was God, everything that was made was made by the Word. Without Him was not Anything made that was made. Everything was made by this individual called the Word. In him was life, 
He gave life, did he not, to Adam and Eve? He gave it to the animals. And the life was the light of men. Now, you could go from there all through the New Testament and see who the light of the world is. That was Jesus Christ. The light shines in darkness. What is the world? The world today is darkness. And it was uh, in the time that Jesus walked the face of the earth. And the darkness comprehended it not. So the world around him did not comprehend who he was. So he's beginning to make it very clear here that the same one who created everything was appeared in a time of darkness, and the world didn't understand the light that was being shined on them. There was a man sent uh, from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now, who did John the Baptist speak of? The one who was his cousin, Jesus, is who he spoke of. So, John is making it pretty clear here that the Word was there at the beginning and made everything, and that John the Baptist was speaking of the same one. I mean, the context here to me is very clear, that John wasn't the light, but he pointed to the light. Verse 11, he came into his own, and his own knew him not. Well, look look at verse 10. He was in the world... He came and lived in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And even his own relatives rejected him. So the Creator, according to John 1, was Christ. Verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Now, if you're a son of God, what does that make you? That makes you God. That is the great mystery and the great truth that Satan is trying to hide above all everything, above every else to us, is that God made us to become God. There were two beings who were God. He who became the Father... And he who was the son, that was the extent of the family. The rest were created beings. They were to the father and the son like dogs and cats and cows and goats and chickens are to us. Beneath us. Now we were made a little for a little while lower than the angels, but we will be made higher than the angels. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, verse 14, the Word was made flesh. So this being who did the creating was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Only begotten Son of the Father. Now, where are you going to go from this 
to show that there's only one being. This is so clear. It's so plain. It's so simple. John, the Apostle John, did not write like Paul, as Peter said, many things hard to understand. It is where Protestants go, and Satan likes to go, to Paul, to try to show some things that are not true, that Paul understood, but he wrote them in such a way that they could be misunderstood. Now, God did that on purpose. He could have called anybody to do what he did through Paul. Paul was a man who hated the church with a passion and was killing every Christian he could find. True Christians. And yet God struck him down and called him, humbled him, and said, I want you to go teach. Why? Why Paul? Because he was a man who was very technical. He was a man who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He spoke in language that the average person would not understand, comprehend, or grasp a lot of the time. On purpose. So that what he wrote could be taken and misused and abused and twisted to come up with a wrong answer. <clears throat> now, Jesus himself did that. Remember? I spoke in parables, or I speak in parables, he said, so that they might be taken and confused and deceived and not understand. Those are his very plain words. And yet all the Protestants out there say, oh, he spoke in parables to make it so simple that farming people and the average person could understand what he meant. Baloney! He spoke in parables so they couldn't understand. And he called the Apostle Paul for the same reason. I mean, there were greater reasons, too. Paul was there for a very, very important uh, ministry, and much of what he said is fairly clear to understand. But there are some areas. Paul, Peter didn't say everything he wrote was hard to understand, but many things were. So Peter was a fisherman. He was not a highly educated man. And he had trouble understanding what he was being told by Paul. Say that again. Could you put that in the words a fisherman could understand? was kind of Peter's approach to Paul. You've been around people like that. Maybe they understand the quantum theory or whatever. <laughs> and they start talking about this stuff. I'm gone. I'm out of it. You start getting that technical, my mind doesn't go there, nor does it want to. Now, it goes to Paul because I understand so much of the things that were written clearly, and I want to understand what Paul was saying because it's part of the Bible, and it, even though some of it might be a little hard to grasp and put together right, I do want to understand it. And so did Peter. And God has given it to us to understand it better than anyone else. Put it that way. There's still a few things in there Paul wrote. You, you read it and you scratch your head and say, now what does that mean? 
And then you go a little further, and it'll explain what it meant. But the Protestants don't go over there and find what he wrote to explain it. They just get on this one verse, and that's it. But John didn't write that way. The Apostle John was very simple in his approach, very straightforward. When you get into John, you, it's hard to twist and rest what John wrote. So if you ever get confused, go to John, <laughs> because he'll put it pretty simply for you. Doesn't mean he was an uneducated man, doesn't mean he didn't know what he was talking about, but he wrote in a very straightforward fashion, and that's the way this chapter begins. He explains who created, that he was with God, whoever that is, and that he was God as well, and that he became the first begotten son living in the flesh of many brethren to come, including you and me. Case closed. Well, let's don't shut it quite yet. Let's add to it, because this is a very important thing for us in the church to understand and know that we weren't wrong all those decades, and that this one God thing is satanic. It is truly satanic. He says that even the very elect could be deceived if it were possible. So people who were very high in worldwide, who had big offices in worldwide, are subject to being deceived if they're not very careful. And so are you and I. And some of them were deceived. And they bought the one God thing from Satan himself. That's where it came from. Who else is it that claims to be one God? Satan's the only one I can think of. The Father doesn't. He claims His Son. He claims you and me. So He doesn't say, I'm one God. Now, there are places in the Bible where it talks about one God. Yes, there are. But you have to twist them out of context to come up with the concept that they are promulgating. Because when you compare John 1, it just blows it out of the water. And it's, that, it's the same thing about other things. If you wanted to know the truth about the Passover, just read Exodus 12 and stop right there. Very clear in there, it's only seven days. Very clear. And so is every other scripture about it, except one in Numbers. That's a little vague. But the rest are quite clear. Or Leviticus it is, 23, I'm sorry, I said Numbers. We're in Numbers, so I guess I went there. All right, let's go to uh, John 1 on down. Uh, to verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. Never has any man seen God. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. 
Numbers 12, we read that whoever the Lord was there spoke mouth to mouth with Moses. And he saw his similitude, right? And here, John is making the statement that the God he is talking about has not been seen at any time. So the one speaking in Numbers 12 is not the same one that John is referring to here. Cannot be. And the only one who could declare the Father was the Son. Do you realize that the Father is not talked about in the Old Testament? Everything was created by the Word, which John clearly shows was Christ. And he was the God of the Old Testament. He is the one who spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. So the one that John is referring to here has to be someone who wasn't around and wasn't the Lord who appeared to men. And he did on several occasions in the Old Testament and spoke to a very few number of people. So, the Father was declared by the Son. Nobody really knew or understood about the Father until the New Testament, the New Covenant. That's what that's saying. I'll I'll back it up with another one here in a little bit. So, the Father was not known. He was not declared. He was not known about in the Old Testament. Jesus was the Lord of hosts. He was the Lord of lords. He was the Lord God Almighty. He was all those titles of the Old Testament because He was the only one dealing with man. The only one. He had not come and declared the Father at that time. It says so right here. Now, let's see where I want to hit the next one here. Uh, Let's go to John 6. Here down to verse 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. No man has. He'd already said that up there in chapter 1, 18. Here he repeats it. No one. Verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last days. So, Jesus is the one who declared the Father and revealed the plan of salvation because the plan of eternal salvation was not part of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was physical blessings and physical cursings for for obedience to the physical law. That's what it was, a marriage covenant. And Israel got divorced because she broke the marriage covenant. But that was to Jesus, not to the Father, the marriage. He's the only one back there that got married. And he's the only one in the future of the Godhead that is going to marry. And now spiritual Israel, not physical Israel, will be the bride. 
And the bride is spiritual. We're physical, but it is a spiritual meaning, and therefore all races can be included in it. And it is a very big point by Peter and by Paul that it's open to not only Israel, but to the Gentiles. Everybody can be grafted in and become a part of the bride of Christ, no matter what their race is. Race has nothing to do with it today. It's the Spirit. Okay, there's a a second testimony. Now let's go to chapter 14. And here I want verse 9, I think. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, Show us the Father? Well, Philip hadn't seen the Father personally. But Christ said, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're just alike, in other words. Our thinking is the same. Uh, we are one. As Christ said in John 14, 15, 16, 17, we read at Passover, the Father and I are one. Now, they were separate beings, but they were one. They weren't conjoined twins that had one body and two heads or some dumb thing, however anybody wants to picture that. No, they were separate beings, but they were one. Now, husband and wife are looked at in Scripture the exact same way. Man looks a little different than a woman, just physically look to look at them, don't they? And yet they become one flesh. So they are one. They are no longer separate and single, but they become a duo. They become one unit, let's say then. Not separate anymore, but belonging together. And to be faithful and true one to the other because they are joined together as one, and therefore that leaves out anyone else. Now the Father and the Son are one, and that leaves out everybody else, unless at some time invited to be included. Then it is a family. You're not really called a family till you have kids, are you? I mean, people can get married and they go childless. Do you really? We don't use that term, family. Family includes more than just the father and the mother. Otherwise, we say John and Jill are coming over. If they got a family, then it's the Joneses. <laughs> the family's coming in our just everyday parlance. All right. Uh, Let's go to Matthew 11. I told you there was a backup to that statement there about Christ revealing the Father. Well, here it is. Matthew 11. Let's go down to verse 27. 
Matthew eleven twenty seven. Let's well let's start in twenty five to, to get the context. At that time, Jesus answered and said, "I thank you, O Father." Now here we have Jesus talking to the Father. Was he talking to himself? No, he was talking to the Father. You know, when somebody talks to himself all the time, you begin to wonder about his sanity. Well, he was talking to another being here. I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Verse 27 now. All things are delivered to me of my Father. Every bit of knowledge, every bit of understanding since he'd been born on this earth came from the Father. As a child born to Mary, Joseph sort of, he had learned from the Father. And no man knows the Son but the Father. No one knew who he was. He was born in Nazareth, little bastard, they said. And no one knew who he was. No one knew who he would become. And the only one that knew was the Father. <laughs> now, an angel came and told Joseph. And an angel came and told John's dad that they were very important. But that came from the Father. By an angel. Not the Father himself, but he sent an angel. Neither knows any man the Father, save the Son. He's the only one who knows the Father, it says. The only one. Neither knows any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Who says the only one that knows about the Father is the Son. That precludes everything who came before Christ was here. And those whom he reveals the Father to. And he began in his ministry to reveal his Father to mankind as part of the New Covenant. So the terms of the New Covenant, in that sense, go a lot <laughs> further than perhaps we have imagined. The New Covenant included the introduction of someone that no one had ever known or knew of before. The God of the Old Testament, Jesus, John clearly says, he was the Word, and He became Jesus and lived on the earth. So to me, this is kind of stunning to put together and realize. I, I mean, I always kind of pictured the Father hovering over the Old Testament in some form. But no. He was not revealed, and no one knew Him but the Son until... He revealed him to the early New Testament church, the part of the New Covenant. So the New Covenant then includes the introduction of the Father. 
That's the first and most important thing about the new covenant is that mankind came to know the Father. And no man could come to him except the Spirit of the Father drew him. So the Father is the one who initiates through Christ the calling of everyone who comes and is accepted into the new covenant. It comes directly from the Father. And that never happened before. Never happened before. Now Moses and Abraham and David and a few in the Old Testament understood that there was an afterlife, understood that they could be part of the kingdom of God. That was revealed to very, very few people. But they didn't understand the full ramifications of it. Because I think he's saying right here, nobody knew the Father, and yet the new covenant and us becoming part of the family of God had to be initiated by the head of the family, who is the Father. Isn't Dad always the head of the family? Well, supposed to be. So it had to come from the Father. So James, Peter, John, those were the first ones that knew about the Father. He revealed it to them. And he talked about the Father a lot there just before he was killed, there in John 14, 15, 16, 17. A lot about the Father. So no one knew him except the Son and whoever the Son revealed it to. We're in pretty close and exclusive company here. And no man knows the Father unless his mind is opened by the Holy Spirit. So this world now can read in Scripture about the Father in the New Testament, but they don't know him. If they don't keep the commandments of God... Christ said he's going to come back and say, I don't know you, and you don't know me, and you don't know the Father. Because only to those who keep his commandments and do his way of life does he reveal himself. Otherwise, the world worships they know not what? The devil, who purports to be the one and only God, and has deceived the world, the whole world, into believing that. Protestants, Catholics, Muslims, all worship Satan without knowing it. Pretty bold statement, but it's the truth. We heard that from Herbert Armstrong. Not something new I'm saying. Let's, uh, let's see, we're in Matthew... 11 here. I want to go to uh, well maybe that's enough for that section. Let's go to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. Let's start gathering some Material here a little bit from the Old Testament. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. Uh, Deuteronomy 10. Did I write? 
I wrote that down wrong. I'm in 10. No, that's not right. Verse 7. Is it 12? Now, Israel, what does the eternal your God require of you but to fear the eternal your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? Now, this is speaking of Christ, of course, because they didn't know the Father, but that's not the one I, that's not the one I had in mind. It says something about the Lord of Lords. And I really wanted that one, but I don't see where it is. Well, sorry about that. Let's go on. Psalm 136. There's only four places, or two places actually in the Old Testament that mention the Lord of Lords. One of them was that one in Deuteronomy, and this one is the other one. Psalm 136. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, His mercy endures forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for His mercy endures forever. So it mentions the Lord, it mentions the God of gods, and in verse 3 it says, O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endures forever. And Deuteronomy 10 or wherever that one was, I think says that he was... What's that? 1017. I wrote 7. Let's go back there a minute. Because I think that's, this is important to see. 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, a great God a mighty and a terrible which regards not persons nor takes reward. He executes judgment and so on to the widow and the fatherless. So the Lord your God is both the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He's called the God of gods and the Lord of lords here in Psalm 136.3. says echoes essentially the same thing. Okay? Now with that... Let's go to Revelation 17, because there are only five references to the Lord of Lords in the whole Bible. There's 245, I think, places where it mentions the Lord of Hosts, but Lord of Lords is only five times. I'm trying to get to Revelation 17 as I talk. In here, let's go down... He's talking about the beasts here and the ten kings that are coming up shortly here in front of our, our faces. Uh, verse 14, These shall make war with the Lamb. Now, how many times is Christ called the Lamb of God? Uh, in the Old and the New Testament. Through the Psalms and Isaiah 52 and so on and so forth. These shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the Lord of Lords. 
very clearly here. And king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So the Lamb is the Lord of lords. Now let's go to chapter 19, verse 16. Want to clear up who the Lord of lords in the Old Testament is? Well, here he is in the New Testament. Chapter 19 and verse 16. This is speaking of Christ coming back out of his... uh, He'll smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So he's acting in concert with and under Almighty God, the Father. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Clearly, in the context, speaking of Christ himself. Go to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, something not difficult to understand that Paul wrote. And here let's go down to verse uh, 15. Well, verse 14. You that keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who's the Lord of lords and King of kings that we just read about in Revelation? That's Him. Which in His times He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So God the Father is the one who reveals who the King of kings and Lord of lords is. So, only those whom Christ reveals the Father to know the Father. And the Father is the one who revealed who Christ was. So they identified each other. (coughs) And that is the title of the Son, King of kings and Lord of lords. He'll be king over the whole earth, and David, king of Israel, under him. Those scriptures we're quite familiar with. Now, let's go to Hebrews 1. Now, this is very, very important in this discussion because it also includes Melchizedek. And some have thought, mostly Protestants, that Melchizedek was not Christ. And yet Herbert Armstrong taught that he was, and I firmly believe that he was. And I think we can prove it right here in Hebrews. Chapter 1. God, who at different times and in different manners, spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, who was the God who spoke to the prophets? Christ himself. It wasn't the Father. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So when you go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nobody has seen the Father at any time. So the God whom we're speaking of here in the Old Testament is the one who spoke to Moses mouth to mouth in the similitude that was seen. If you thought God in chapter 1, verse 1 here, was speaking of the Father, it's not. 
It was Christ, the God of the Old Testament, who spoke to the prophets. And now, in the last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Well, this was, okay, God there is the Father, I'm sorry. But he did not speak directly. That's the point I was actually trying to make. The Father was there at all times, and he spoke through uh, Christ. He was the spokesman, the Logos, the spokesman, or the Word. He was the one that did the speaking, just as uh, Aaron did the speaking for Moses. Christ spoke for God to the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Now, it's the same being, but with a different title. In the Old Testament, he had one title. Well, lots of titles, but he was called Melchizedek. He was called Lord of Lords. He was called Lord of Hosts. He was called a lot of things in the Old Testament, and he was the God of the Old Testament. But now he's making a change here. And he's saying we're not going by what was in the Old Testament anymore. We're going by a new covenant, a new testament. And we have a different name now. It's not just Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Lord of Hosts. It's the Son. We just read in 1 Timothy 6 that the Father revealed the Son. So, he was not known as the Father in the Old Testament, Almighty God, and Christ was not known as the Son. He was the God that they knew of. So, in the New Testament, then, the Father was revealed by the Son, and to us by the Son, and God revealed the Son to us as the Son. You know, if you've got a kid you're ashamed of, you might introduce him as the neighbor kid or the red-headed stepchild or something. But if you want to get specific about somebody instead of general terms, this is my son. This isn't the neighbor kid. This isn't my stepson. This is my son. That's what the father did. He declared Christ as his son for the first time. Now, you knew him as the Lord of hosts. You knew him as Melchizedek. You knew him as this. But he's my son. Now you have better understanding. Now you have some light you didn't have before. This is something I kept back. Didn't tell until the New Testament. It didn't really apply until now. So... From the apostles forward, we're the only ones that have known about the Father and the Son. Spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Christ is the one, the Son, who created the worlds. We read that in John. By him was all things created that were created. We see it repeated here in Hebrews. Uh, keep your finger here. Don't lose your place. And uh, go to Colossians. Uh, 
Uh, I wrote down here somewhere where I wanted to go, but we'll find it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So you, you have the Father and the Son both mentioned here. Christ and God the Father. Now down in verse 14, well, the speaking of his dear Son, verse 13, that'd be Christ himself, in whom we have redemption through his blood, can't be speaking of anybody but Jesus the Christ or Emmanuel as we know him today, even the forgiveness of sins came through his blood. So salvation can come by one name only, the one who died for us. Who is the image of the invisible God. That's an interesting way that Paul put that. The one speaking to Moses said, he's, in, I'm, he's the only one I'm speaking to here, mouth to mouth, and who will see my similitude. Couldn't have been the Father. who is the image of the invisible God, the Father, whom no man has seen, John 1 says. Nobody's seen the Father. So he's invisible. Now, people have seen the Son. Some saw him in the Old Testament, a few. Some saw him as a child on this earth. Some saw him as a grown man on this earth. And the apostles saw him a few times afterward. Remember, he said, I will not speak with you much after I go back to the Father. But he did clearly come back and teach Paul person to person for three and a half years, same amount of time he had spent teaching the other apostles. So, not much, but occasionally he has come back to speak to someone here even since then. But not the invisible God, the Father. No one's seen him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now, for by Him, the Son, the Lamb, the Lord of Lords, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, including the angels, the 24 elders, everything that's been created in heaven and earth was created by He who became the Son. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things. He was there before the creation of any kind took place. And by Him all things consist. The Father gave Him total power over everything except Himself. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, he is not the first one to be resurrected as a human from the dead. There were a few in the Old Testament. But he was the first to be resurrected and given eternal life as the firstborn of many brethren that are also to be changed. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Are you kidding me? There's only one being that's the God? One God? Come on, this, this language is all through the New Testament. 
And the very fact that it is so common to mention the Father and the Son as two beings, it is also quite uncommon to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And even that may be a mistranslation there in Matthew 28. But it mentions the Father and the Son over and over and over. I can remember using this back in the 60s when I was new in the ministry to show people that the Holy Spirit must have felt kind of left out if it was a being (laughs) because it talks about the Father and the Son all the way through the Bible. And there's the Holy Spirit who's supposed to be part of the Trinity just as important as they are and it gets left out of the conversation constantly. How would you feel if you your parents had, let's say, three kids? John and Jill and Bill. And when they say, these are my kids, John and Jill, how does Bill feel? Gets left out every time. Well, the Holy Spirit got left out every time. That's because he's not a being. It's just the essence, the power of God. It's a spirit, their spirit, their mind, their attitude, whereby they react. You have a spirit in man that makes you different than dogs and cows. That spirit, combined with your brain, gives you an intelligence they don't have. Logic, reasoning, so on. They just go by instinct, and we go by thought. Sometimes. But, I mean, it's there. Put it that way. Whether we use it or not, it's there. So, it it shows here very clearly, just like John, just like Hebrews, that Christ is the one that made everything by His Father's authority. We are never told by Jesus himself, to pray to him. I've said this before, but most Protestants don't believe it. They pray to Jesus. Even my sister, who grew up in the church, I said one day, you know, you're not supposed to pray to Jesus. Well, yes, I am. I says, where does it say that? Well, it's got to be in there somewhere. No, it ain't. The only instruction he gave us was to pray the Father. And in his model prayer, he told us to address the Father. Now, he's there and he hears every prayer. Don't get me wrong. Because it is by, through him that we gained access to the Father. We didn't even know the Father until he revealed him to us. And once he revealed him to us, and the temple veil was broken in half, we could go to the Holy of Holies to the Father. Only through Christ. We go to Him in Christ's name. We pray in Christ's authority. That's why we address the Father at the beginning of a prayer right here in services. And at the end... We say, in the name of Emmanuel, or he who was Jesus, who is the Son. Because the prayer is directly to the Father 
through the Son who gave us the authority and the opportunity and the forgiveness and the cleanness so that our prayer might be accepted by the Father. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's no way that God is going to pay attention to sinners and the filthy. So we have to go through the cleansing process of he who shed his blood for us so that we can thereby be accepted of the Father. Nobody could pray the Father in the Old Testament. They hadn't been cleansed. And even in type, Aaron had to be cleansed. His clothes, his body, everything had to be just right to go in to even see Christ himself. And that was only once a year. So Christ himself appearing to Moses or to Abraham was a very, very rare thing, and the Father was not known at all. I don't think I really grasped that until I started thinking about this recently. But nobody knew him. And now it's open, and you and I can go directly to him, because the blood of Christ cleanses us on the way to him. And we ask forgiveness on the way to the Father through Christ. Your prayer has to go through Him to the Father. And it is His blood that cleanses us so that the Father can be approached by us. And through Him, salvation, no other way can salvation come. And no other way can you get to the Father except through the Son because of what he did for us and opened the way. So, Hebrews opens with that thought. I'm already out of time speaking as a man. Let's not get into Hebrews then uh, until next week because we are out of the normal time and there's a lot here about this, but uh, that gives you an overview of those who are involved at the upper end in the New Covenant with those who are at the lower end of the New Covenant, which would be, be us, the weak in the base of the world. And if we understand that concept, and we'll get a better picture of it after next week, then we're more ready to accept the terms and conditions that those at the top of the covenant lay down for us.